0: Weatherthon 3000 tomorrow's weather forecast bad Good afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is
1: Berkeley Rocks. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee.
0: Coming up on today's show, Tasty Brains... Copying monkeys, and high-tech Viagra.
1: In addition, we'll be joined by Mark Fraunfelder, who will talk about the world's maddest mad scientists and other worst.
0: Also, we'll find out how fast speed of sound is.
1: So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous question of the week coming right up here on Berkeley Groks.
0: Grox, I'm Franklin.
1: and I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank?
0: Pretty good. It's another uh, great week for science.
1: It's every week is a great week for science, as far as I can tell. Yes. Uh, when I do find the week that's not great for science, I think my life is over.
0: You mean you don't just go and play golf?
1: <laughs> well, I guess I could do that too, and then after that, I could I could die happy.
0: And you can also be happy if you uh, have lots of nitric oxide, right?
1: Uh, that is true. <laughs> yes. In fact, I'd be erect in many in many levels, yes. physically and emotionally. <laughs>
0: We all know that, and in fact, one of the um, goals in medicine is to pump up the volume of uh, NO, nitric
1: oxide, in your bloodstream, right? That is correct, in certain places. (laughs) Like the heart, of course. Right, of course.
0: So it turns out nanotechnology is providing some solutions for uh, controlling the release of nitric oxide in our bloodstreams.
1: Oh, how, what are they doing?
0: They have these gold nanoparticles with NO-derived uh, ligands attached to it. And by varying the, uh, the length of these ligands, they can uh, control the release of NO molecules from the end of these particles. And so you can basically um, create a whole host of biomedical applications for, you know, directed, targeted delivery of NO into your body.
1: I see. So basically you have these uh, nanoparticles floating around your bloodstream. Yes. And somehow it gets released just by the length of the uh, particle?
0: The length of the ligand that attaches the NO to the uh, nanoparticle. Okay. So you can control how much is being released, how fast it's being released. Oh,
1: somehow, some equilibrium, I guess. uh... Yeah.
0: And afterwards, you know, the goal just flushes out of your system.
1: And then you could collect it and sell it. (laughs) Oh, of
0: course. This is another, uh, I guess, development to show how um, promising (laughs) nanotechnology will be in the coming years, I guess, in uh,
1: solving various physiological
0: uh, problems.
1: Right. Well, gold-based Viagra. (laughs) What the world needs.
0: I'm sure Goldfinger. (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: right. Viagra Gold. (laughs) Available in stores now.
0: This was actually carried out uh, by a team of chemists at North Carolina Chapel Hill and was published in uh, the Journal of the American Chemical Society, uh, Volume 127.
1: Alright, Frank, so if I told you to jump off a bridge, would you? Uh, well, no. What if you saw me jump off a bridge, would you? Are you saying I'm stupid? <laughs> <laughs> I I just want to see how many permutations of this I can possibly get. Uh, Well, so it turns out, though, that uh, a lot of times animals will mimic the behavior of uh, other uh, animals that they see when they're doing some option, like lemmings, for instance. Mm -hmm. Uh, But so I was wondering if, uh, for instance, uh, abuse of like uh, becoming abusive uh, animals actually is related to whether or not they see their parents being abusive. Isn't the general consensus that abuse runs in a family? Well, that is certainly true, but it's unknown whether or not it's genetic or whether it's due to environmental factors just seeing the abuse or not. Mm -hmm. So uh, researchers have been looking at this for quite some time. Of course, people have done experiments in rats where they've uh, taken rats in uh, supposedly aggressive uh, environments and changed them, etc. So now what they've done is they've done this in rhesus monkeys. They've taken uh, monkeys, which were uh, from uh, parents who were apparently not aggressive, placed them in either foster-foster monkey homes, mm-hmm. which were either aggressive or not aggressive. Right. And they saw that they could turn apparently genetically not aggressive monkeys into very aggressive monkeys just by housing them with aggressive parents. Wow. Fear is the path the <laughs> dark side. And it's inherited just by looking at it. <laughs> don't look. Don't look. <laughs> Uh, so it's it's pretty it's fascinating of course there's some uh controls obviously that couldn't be done just because of the issues here so it's not nail shut close but it does seem to indicate that in fact uh, a lot of behaviors learn from from the environment it must break the cycle <sighs> cycle of violence it must end now and uh if you wanted to uh, end or at least look at it you can take a look in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences
0: oh our favorite journal PNAS
1: So, Charles, what's the most disgusting thing you've ever drunk? Well, I guess maybe it was the same stuff that had uh, previously passed through my system. I don't want to know which end. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it might have been sweat, I think. <laughs>
0: oh, okay. Well, it turns out uh, preferring a taste or in recognizing it may involve separate parts of the brain.
1: Okay. I imagine the part of the tongue, obviously, or the uh, the taste sensations.
0: Right, which I guess are resided in your, um, your amygdala hippocampus and the nearby sections, right? Mm-hmm. There's an interesting um, work that was carried out at Caltech by Professor Rolf Adolfs. And what he showed was uh, he had a patient who apparently had damaged his amygdala and hippocampus and could not distinguish between uh, different tastes. Oh, really? Right. And what was shown was this guy, um, when he was giving a saline solution, said it tasted like pop. Okay. So he, he didn't know what it was supposed to taste like. But then in a comparison, he was giving both sweet solution, a soda pop, and the saline solution. And after those, uh, he drank them, he had a preference for the sweeter one. Hmm. But he didn't know why.
1: Right. Interesting. So, uh, uh, I guess this suggests that basically those structures are involved in somehow signaling sort of his cognitive awareness of it, but not uh, his... Right.
0: So, somehow your brain has a way of knowing what you should or should not be eating. Right. Even if you don't know why.
1: Right. Interesting. Hmm.
0: So I, I guess it just shows uh, where your preferences and where your recognition parts of the brain are separate.
1: Right. Well, I guess he must be very easy to cook for and he, <laughs> can, he can go eat at McDonald's and stuff like that.
0: Indeed. Anyways, uh, this was carried out at Caltech and it was published in a recent issue of Nature Neuroscience.
1: All right, and finally, uh, do you ever feel like cloning yourself? Do I feel like cloning myself?
0: Well, you know, I prefer to be an original.
1: And uh, really, I think we appreciate that there's only one of you.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm glad, too, because if I saw my twin, I would just wipe him out.
1: <laughs> I'm not really sure the world can handle two Franklings, but <laughs> uh, but it certainly can handle more than one uh, type of ant who's a clone. An ant? Yes, an ant. Really? So it turns out that a group of ant, uh, little fire ants called Wasmenia Arupuncta, have been found to be able to clone their genes uh, through a very novel sort of sexual process.
0: Huh. I mean, I, I would think you would not need—you could do it asexually if you just want to clone yourself, right?
1: Uh, yeah, so it turns out that, I guess, uh, certain types of um, females can do this. But in fact, the females are able to clone themselves by passing on their genes to other uh, females. Uh, in this process, and males somehow can also do the same thing.
0: Wow. So um, basically, who's who's being cloned, or wh- which side is actually being cloned?
1: So apparently both sides are cloning themselves, both the female and the male lines. I see. But apparently it's uh, sexually driven, so basically all the females just sort of clone themselves into other females, and all the males clone themselves into other males. That is very bizarre. Yes. So it's a little uh, separation of the sexes, I guess. <laughs> we don't need them. <laughs> uh, who really did, in a way? Oh. <laughs> um, and I'm sure they don't need us either So, <laughs> uh, but it is fascinating and uh, the results according to uh, J. Spencer Johnson of Texas A&M says that they're very exciting and you have an extreme example of sexual antagonism in the making wow <laughs> seems almost uh,
0: unnatural <laughs>
1: <laughs> and this was interesting work it was published by Dennis Fournier and Arnaud Estoup in the recent edition of Nature
0: and that's all for our look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Berkley You're listening to here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up, Mr. Mark Ferenfelder joins us to talk about the world's worst, so stay tuned. Back to Berkeley Grox, when we remember things we usually remember the best, but equally memorative are also the worst things. And in fact, a compilation of the worst possible things has been made. Uh, A recent book, The World's Worst, a guide to the most disgusting and hideous in-depth and dangerous people, places, and things on earth. Well, joining today is our special guest, uh, Mr. Mark Fraunfelder, who has compiled a bunch of these stories. Uh, Mr. Fraunfelder, thanks for joining us on Perfect Rocks today.
2: Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm happy to be here.
0: Great. So you've written uh, certainly a disgusting and hideous book, and I mean this in the, as a compliment. Could you tell us what was the inspiration behind it?
2: Sure. I uh, have been, uh, for the last several years, have been collecting uh, unusual news stories, and uh, my friends are, are aware of this. Uh, a lot of them I post to my, to my blog. But uh, I received one story that I thought was really amazing. It was about a a bank president from Greenwich, Connecticut, who, uh, this was several years ago, was flying on a first-class seat on the way from South America to his home, and he was enjoying all the the free beverages uh, that that they serve in the first-class cabin. And he ended up getting so drunk that the stewardesses cut him off, and he... Didn't like that. I guess, you know, being a bank president, they're not used to having people tell them what they can't or can't do, especially uh, when it comes to what they can drink or not.
0: And at 40,000 feet in the air, right? Yeah.
2: And so he got really belligerent (laughs) about it. And he got up, and there was some pushing and some yelling, and and all that, but he, he wasn't getting his way. He was even trying to serve himself drinks, but finally he got so angry that he climbed up on top of the beverage cart and pulled his pants down and relieved himself right on the beverage cart in front of everybody on the plane. And then uh, he uh, ended up running up and down the aisles wiping his hands off on the seats of the, the passengers. And uh, when I read this, I thought, you know, this has got to be rudest behavior ever on an airplane. And when I thought that a little light bulb went off in my head and I thought, you know, it would be fun to compile stories of kind of the worst things that the world has to offer, especially ones that also have a, a funny or unusual twist to them. <laughs> so that was the impetus for the book, and I just started collecting stories, and I came up with a, about 50 of them for this book.
0: Did you get these stories from uh, some of your audience, or you just found them on the web, or? Uh, well,
2: it was a it was a combination. Some of the things that people sent me, some of them were. were stories that I had heard, you know, 20 years ago when I was younger and uh, wanted to check up on them and see if they were really true or not. And uh, I remember my uh, father telling me the story of the Kandiru, which is a little uh, eel-like fish. It's actually a catfish that lives in, in the fresh waters of South America. And this little fish has the ability to actually swim up a stream of urine, if someone's urinating in the water, and can lodge itself into the person's urethra and then uh, extend little barbs and get stuck in there, and it's a parasitic animal and it it will, uh, you know, drink the blood. And so I thought, you know, that can't really be true, that's just some kind of urban legend, but I looked into it and it is in fact true. There are these little fish that will just swim up a a urine stream, and once they're in there, they're very difficult to pull out because these barbs stick out. and uh, there was a case of a man who was standing in the Amazon River, and uh, he was urinating, in and in a, a kanduru wham up inside him, and a, a urogenital surgeon had to remove the fish using a tube with an alligator clip attached to the end of it. And there are pictures of it on the Internet if you're brave enough to take a look at it. So uh, that one I call the least genial fish.
0: <laughs> I kind of cringe when I hear about this, but it's... So I've noticed you actually have um, several examples of stories involving animals and pets. Uh, Perhaps you could maybe talk about the most innovative or disgusting pet technology or or examples of animal uh, behavior.
2: Oh, yeah, sure. Um, Well, I I think one of my favorite stories in the book is about Miracle Mike, the headless chicken. And this is a uh, chicken... uh, that was uh, in, uh, this was in 1945 in a little farming community in Colorado called Fruita, Colorado. And this little chicken was uh, is one of several that was getting decapitated that day by the farmer uh, headed for the market. Uh, this particular chicken, though, when he uh, decapitated this chicken, it just kept running around the yard uh, as if it as if its head you know it, it didn't even realize that its head was on the ground sitting next to it. Uh, the farmer was pretty surprised, and he said, I, "I just want to see how long this this chicken can live." so the next day he woke up and looked, and the chicken was just standing on a uh, on a fence, roosting as if nothing had ever uh, happened to it and it was it was a rooster actually so it was attempting to crow it was making like a little gurgling sound and it was attempting to preen itself with its phantom head and this chicken became kind of a a celebrity in this little town and people came to see it and a carnival uh... sideshow uh... empresario heard about this and thought that it could be a big moneymaker so he approached the, the farmer and said let's take this on the road and so they did and the chicken was a big success they the uh... Chicken was bringing in the equivalent of $45,000 a month in those days. Which, wow. You know, it's, it's good money for a, a little chicken. And they brought along a little jar of formaldehyde with a chicken, ch- severed chicken head in it. And they would show the head and say, here's the head and here's the chicken. Um, uh, the chicken was thriving. They would feed it with a little medicine dropper and, and put some gruel down its throat to feed it. But after a year and a half, the chicken would sleep in the hotel room with the farmer and every once in a while the farmer would have to clear its throat with a syringe but on this particular trip the farmer had left the syringe back at the sideshow and so um, Mm. the chicken started to choke and there was nothing he could do and he just uh, watched the poor little thing expire and that was the end of his fortune and the end of the chicken's life. But uh, back in Fruta the, the residents there were desperate for another one of these chickens because they wanted to make the same kind of money, so they were chopping off the heads of all the chickens, but they could never chop it off in a way that would leave a little piece of the brain uh, stem intact. So uh, there was never been, there's never been another headless chicken like Miracle Mike.
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) I haven't read all the stories, but I noticed one of them is the Maddest Mad Scientist. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about
2: that. Oh, yeah. This one is uh, a really strange story. Um, I'll just start uh, by saying, uh, telling the story this way, that uh, in 1952, there uh, was a 25-year-old American artist living in in Paris. His name was Stanley Glickman. He was an up-and-coming artist. He had a piece that was hanging in New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, Kind of an up-and-coming guy. And he went with a friend to a bar and met a group of uh, Americans there, and they got into a conversation with them. And one of the people in the party offered him a, uh, to buy him a free drink, or to buy him a drink, and so Glickman accepted the offer, and as he was drinking it, he started to feel strange, and he thought that the walls were appearing to move and that wine bottles were levitating, the electric lights in the cafe had halos around them. It was a very disturbing experience. What he later found out was that his drink had been spiked with LSD, and the person who had spiked his drink with LSD, was named Sidney Gottlieb, who was the head of the technical services division at the CIA, and also ran a program called MKUltra in the CIA, which was a clandestine drug and mind control campaign that was uh, designed for uh, Cold War uh, espionage techniques. It turns out that this uh, Sidney Gottlieb was quite a character. He would dose people with all sorts of psychedelic drugs without them knowing that they were taking the drugs. Unfortunately, this artist who he had dosed, it ruined his life. Uh, he ended up uh, breaking off his engagement. He never painted again. He just had a series of odd jobs and, and died kind of uh, uh, in, uh, you know, impoverished and uh, unknown. Another guy... Uh, once uh, In 1953, Gottlieb was at a U.S. Army research retreat at the Deep Creek Lodge in western Maryland, and he spiked the after-dinner drinks of, the, of his guests with LSD, without letting the, uh, without letting anyone know. One of these people was a, a 43-year-old germ warfare researcher named Frank Olson, and he was also very disturbed by this experience. And when he came home from this event, his wife and children said that they could hardly recognize him as the uh, jovial, happy father and husband that they knew. Unfortunately, nine days later, Olson was so upset by what had happened to him that he committed suicide by jumping from a 13-story window. So the, the interesting thing about this is that Gottlieb was never punished or fired for, for what he did. He was called before a Senate hearing on CIA abuses in 1977, and uh, he told the, uh, the committee that he thought the dosing people, and and treating them as drug guinea pigs was fine. And he said, harsh as it may sound in retrospect, it felt that it was an issue where national survival might be concerned. Such a procedure and such a risk was a reasonable one to take. Gottlieb ended up retiring to a little uh, farm in uh, Reston, Virginia, where he bred goats and practiced folk dancing and lived just a wonderful life, probably without a, a bit of guilt about all these lives that he had ruined during his career. Pretty bad character. Jeez.
0: (laughs) Let's talk about something a bit more recent. What do you think is probably the worst example of technology, the use of technology these days?
2: Well, I think uh, an interesting one uh, is the uh, Iridium cell phone service. This was a uh, satellite mobile phone service that was uh, started in the 80s by Motorola, and the idea was to launch dozens of satellites, low-Earth orbiting satellites in the air, and have these uh, satellites provide global service anywhere on the planet so that you could make a call anywhere. Right. And so they they invested billions and billions of dollars into this technology uh, to make this work. But the thing was they never really did much market testing on this because the telephone calls, cost about seven dollars a minute and you couldn't Use the phone indoors. You'd have to step outside to make the telephone calls, and so they didn't really realize that, for some reason, or, or they didn't want to realize the fact that there are hardly any people that are willing to use a phone that costs that much money and only works outside. You know, people that work on oil derricks uh, in the uh, you know in the uh, ocean. That's probably a, a, somebody who would want this phone. Or, or
0: someone on the top of Mount Everest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
2: Explorers. Uh, you know, people that, that are on scientific expeditions and that kind of thing. But how big is that audience, you know? Uh, how big is that customer base? Maybe 10,000, 20,000. That's not nearly enough to support 77 satellites in the air and the infrastructure and the, the licenses required in every country in the world for the ground-based <laughs> relay station. So it, uh, it failed miserably and they ended up losing billions of dollars on this venture, and they ended up having to sell it at fire sale price to another company, I, I believe it was, sold for, it was sold for $25 million, which is just half of 1% of the original cost. <laughs> and the new Iridium, it costs a dollar a minute to use, which is reasonable, but you still have to be outside to use it. Mm-hmm. So the satellites like are still flying out there, right? For, for a while, they were thinking of letting them just uh, fall out of orbit and burn up in the atmosphere, but at the last minute, Boeing and a couple of other people bought the company.
0: Well, uh, I guess we're running a bit out of time here. Uh, are there any last words you'd like to add about your book? or about yourself?
2: Well, you can buy the book on Amazon or most bookstores. And uh, also, I am uh, posting excerpts from the book on my weblog, which is boingboing.net. And so if you want to read some free samples of the book, uh, just go to the website, and you can check them out right there.
0: Great. And do you have a a second edition plan in the future?
2: Uh, Yeah, I've actually already been talking with my uh, editor about a, a sequel to it, you know, uh, Son of World's Worst or something like that. It, it appears as though, uh, in you know, I thought I'd scraped everything off the bottom of the barrel, but there's a lot more muck down there to be <laughs> removed and examined. Great.
0: Uh, Mr. Fraunfelder, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Grocks today.
2: Thank you very much, Frank. It's a pleasure speaking with you.
0: And we were just talking to Mr. Mark Fraunfelder, author of The World's Worst, his book is now available on the web at Amazon and Barnes and Nobles and bookstores around the country. Uh, you can read more about his writings at boingboing.net. This is Berkeley Rocks you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, the Grokotron 5000 and the world famous question of the week. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Groks. Well, Mr. Fraunfelder has kindly agreed to join us on this week's Grocotron 5000, the computer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today's topic is the world's best or the world's worst. Subject number one, the world's best or the world's worst. President of the United States, George W. Bush. I would uh,
2: lean towards the world's worst. <laughs> so he, he, won't,
0: he won't simply just be a footnote of history then.
2: No, no. I think he'll be remembered as a, a traitor to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights in history.
0: All right. Subject number two, the world's best or the world's worst, the Star Wars movie series.
2: I would say uh, that's a toss. That, that, that could be split down the line between the world's worst and the world's best. Uh, the, the ones that came out first, the first couple ones are among the world's best movies, and everything after that are among the world's worst.
0: <laughs> okay, subject number three, the world's best or world's worst, super pop star Michael Jackson.
2: Uh, I would give him the world's best. I think uh, his music, especially his early stuff, is great, and uh, the accusations against him are hearsay and anybody's guess. And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, I think that the verdict was, was the, the proper verdict.
0: Something slightly related. Uh, the rules best or rules worst? The media.
2: Again, split down the middle. I would say uh, there's some excellent uh, news sources out there, and I think there are also some horrible ones out there as well, so that you, can't, uh, you can't just give it uh, one or the other.
0: All right, and finally, subject number five, the world's best or world's worst, uh, the Scientology religion.
2: I don't want to get in trouble for that one, so I'm (laughs) going to pass.
0: Very good. Well, Mr. Fronfelder, thanks for joining us on the Grokotron 5000.
2: All right, well, thanks a lot, Frank. I appreciate it.
1: Okay, thank you very much there. It's Jimmy Johnson from 1930s Radio. Thank you very much for the Grokodron 5000. We didn't have that in my day, and it's all just cray-cray-crazy. And now we're reporting live, live, live from looking up in the air. It's the bird, it's the plane. No, it's the speed of sound. And how fast was it? It's 330 meters, meters per second. And that's what you get when you're going real fast.
0: Okay, and now here's the Tokyo Kid with this week's question of the week. The sun, the earth, the moon, the celestial bodies, and the orbits. And then there's the... But uh, what is it? If you know or think you know the answer, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. Uh, you won't win anything, but you'll know which path to take. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox.
1: Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
0: If you'd like to contact us at Berkeley Grox, email us at groks at com. For Frankly Grox, I'm Frank Ling.
1: And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.